0: This is Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Let's get into it. All right, guys, I would love to just go ahead and launch right in to part two of Toxic Masculinity. But wouldn't you know it? I can't do that because these pro-murder Democrats can't go a week they can't go one week without doing something that's completely, insanely demonic. It's incredible. Every time I record a podcast, I basically wait a day, and then there's big news that pops up in the world of abortion. So if you'll indulge me for just a little bit, we I promise we're going to get into part two of Toxic Masculinity because I know a lot of you guys are excited about that. I've got to bring some things to your attention because hopefully you already knew about this, but if you don't, i got to let you know. So last week, about 24 hours after I recorded the podcast, Virginia, the state of Virginia, there was a bill that was introduced by House member and Democrat Kathy Tran, and this was a Virginia House Bill number 2491, and this would legalize abortion up to birth. So basically, thank you, state of New York, you've done such a fantastic job. You were the seventh state to approve abortion, basically up to the day of birth, and now everyone's just running around trying to see if they can be on the list next. You got Rhode Island, now you got Virginia. It's just great. So. Kathy Tran, she was uh, challenged while she was presenting this bill, and she was pretty organized, kinda, but even if you watch the video, you can see that she's kind of grasping at straws at different points, but the guy that is uh, questioning her, and I'm sorry, I couldn't find it in time uh, in order to record this, I couldn't find the guy that was questioning her, but I think it was a Republican that was on one of the committees that was accepting this bill, He challenged her on a couple of different things, and so what I want to do is I want to play the audio right now for you, because I want you to hear this interaction between this gentleman and Kathy Tran.
1: This bill would remove the following statutes, trap or targeted regulations of abortion providers, removing language classifying facilities that perform five or more first trimester abortions per month as hospitals. It would repeal Virginia's informed consent, mandatory ultrasound, and 24-hour delay, would repeal the requirement that second trimester abortions be performed in a hospital licensed by the State Department of Health. It would repeal the requirement for two additional physicians in cases of third trimester abortions.
2: Delegate Tran. Yes, sir. How late in a pregnancy would your bill apply if a physician was simply willing to certify that that the uh, continuation of the pregnancy would impair the mental health of, of the woman? How how late are we talking about? In
1: well, so so the way the suggestion that we've um, made in the bill is to say it's in the third uh, trimester and at the, you know, with the certification of the physician. So,
2: so how late in the third trimester would you be able to, to do that?
1: You know, I'm, it's very unfortunate that our, the, our physicians, uh, our witnesses, were not able to attend today to speak specifically. No, I'm to talking
2: that. about your bill. How, how, yeah, how, late, I mean, how late in the third trimester could a, a physician perform an abortion if he indicated it would impair the mental health of the of the woman?
1: Or physical health.
2: Okay. Okay. I'm, I'm uh, talking about the mental health.
1: So, I mean, through the third trimester. The third trimester goes all the way up to 40 weeks.
2: Okay. But to the end of the third trimester?
1: Yep. I don't think we have a limit in the bill.
2: So... Um, Where it's obvious that a woman is about to give birth, she has physical signs of, of, that she is about to give a birth. Would that still be a point at which she could request an abortion if she was so certified? She's dilating.
1: Uh, Mr. Chairman, that would be a you know a decision that the doctor, the physician, and the woman. would I understand would make that. At that. I'm point. asking
2: if your bill allows that.
1: My bill would allow that. Yes.
2: I certainly could have said a week from her due date, and that would have been the same answer. Correct.
1: That it's allowed in the bill. Yes. Yes.
2: And in addition to what you just represented, it, it, you, you do acknowledge that you substantially changed the standard by removing a couple of words here. Correct. Substantially and immediate. Like- I'm sorry. Line, line 80. eighty. Eighty. Line eighty.
1: I'm sorry. Can you just tell me, I'm on, I'm on, I think I'm in the right part that you're looking line, at as well.
2: Line 80. Line 80. You are changing the standard under which the yeah. judgment yes. call is I'm made. Yes, okay. I'm For a third trimester. For, for a, an abortion at any point in the third trimester. You're changing the standard? I'm
1: changing the standard, that? yes. Okay,
2: all right. What type of mental health conditions would you anticipate would be uh, utilized by physicians under these circumstances to determine that a, a child... That is otherwise viable is worthy of an abortion.
1: You know, I—I I mean, again, I'm not a physician, so I can't make those calls as to when a physician would determine that uh, a woman's mental health is would you know would where they would be able to certify an abortion at that point.
2: But the doctor, the physician, wouldn't have any have to have to have any special specialized training in mental health to make that determination under your bill, right?
1: Under this bill, no.
2: Okay. All right. Thank you. Delegate Tran, what What are some of the conditions that um, a woman could be experiencing in a third trimester late-term pregnancy uh, for which abortion and not delivery would be the optimal, um, Result to protect either her life or health or that of the the child, if that's even an, an interest. But what what would be the? What, is there any um, commonly accepted medical decision to terminate the pregnancy in the late term rather than deliver the the child if the mother's health or um, life is actually in danger?
1: Um, you know, Mr. Chairman, I am aware that there are certain medical conditions where that might be an option for. Um, the mother and I would actually turn over to Galena from Narol to is, to see if she has those specific uh, medical examples. Okay, thank you.
3: So, hi, I'm really short. That's okay. Um, I don't have a lot of specific examples because I'm not a, I'm not a physician. Um, I'm an attorney, so um, and we unfortunately do not have the, phys- the physicians could not be here today because they are seeing patients at the moment. I know that there are certain central nervous system anomalies that cannot be determined until later stages in the pregnancy. I also know that certain anomalies like the absence of um, certain organs okay and, but, or, so you're talking um, about
2: the child now, let me just leave that out of the equation then sure. in terms of the health or life of the mother what what conditions are there that can't be resolved by delivering the the child rather than uh, undergoing an abortion
3: again i am not a physician <clears throat> um what i can point to a case that happened in ireland that's the first one that comes to my mind um that I'm happy to find for you and um, send you the article about. Um, I can definitely send you that article, and if you'll give me some time, I can um, ask our physicians to provide you with a list of maladies that can lead to a woman having to have an abortion at the late stage of pregnancy. I do know that those cases exist.
2: But you don't know what they are?
3: Like I said, not a physician. I do not do you not have those specifics about the woman I have some specifics about the fetus I do not have the specifics okay. about the woman
2: all right and again I since you yielded you, you don't have any I'm talking to you now yes. delegate you, you don't have any specifics on that obviously no
1: I don't I'm okay not
2: a okay well we're talking about a lot of physician stuff here and nobody appears to know the answer and the doctors aren't here so okay. I, I'm you know um, it would have been helpful maybe to to have those questions answered
0: So I played the entire audio there for you because I wanted you to have all of it because anytime that someone on this part of the party, you know, the left wing, the the Democratic party, now the mainstream Democratic party, when they say things like this, they want to say, oh, well, I was taken out of context. Well, if you look at the entire clip, well, if you listen to the entirety of the audio, you'll be able to get my context and my genius through which I was able to present this bill or this law or this idea. But I wanted you to hear it all because every time she was pressed, she evaded. And then she sent it over to another gal who was like, oh, well, I'm not a physician either. And then it was evasion, evasion, evasion. Wasn't it so interesting that there were no physicians available? Because I feel like the physicians would have been pegged pretty easily by the guy that was doing the questioning. The guy that was doing the questioning was really calm, just asking very, very basic questions. He wanted to get her on the record to say what she wanted to say which is that we in the democratic party want abortion up until the day of birth as of right now, as of right now. And I'm saying that because I'm assuming they're going to want to extend that later. And we have a few more hints that I'll get to here in just a second. So the interesting thing about Kathy Tran is she introduces this bill and she's widely criticized for it, not only for her performance up there in front of the committee, but just for basically bringing it up in in general. But that same day, This is insane. That same day that she introduced House Bill 2491, she introduced House Bill 2495, which would limit the use of pesticides in the state of Virginia in order to protect the lives of, wait for it, gypsy moths and canker worms, otherwise known as inchworms. So earlier in the day, she wants to get legislation that I'm assuming she wanted passed that she's claiming now that she never read, which is absolutely absurd, where we can eliminate the life, murder the life, extinguish the life of a baby up to the day of their birth. But you know what? We got to take care of these moths and inchworms, guys. I mean, that, that is the existential crisis of our age. If we can't protect these moss and inchworms, what can we do as a society? Think about that. And you would think that that would be the craziest thing that was said in the state of Virginia by a Democrat that day. And I know it seems like I'm going a little bit political, but these people are Democrats. I'm just pointing out exactly what they're doing. This isn't a mainstream thought process of the right wing or the Republican party. Then we have Virginia governor, Ralph Northam hopping into the fray. So this guy, Ralph Northam, he was sold to America and Virginians as a moderate. He was, he was supposed to be seen as a moderate candidate for that state. And here's the thing. He's in a couple of different controversies this week. You know, there's a lot of people calling for his head on the left and the right. And we're only going to talk about the first bit of controversy that got him into hot water. And it was this, he was on WTOP radio show, ask the governor. This is apparently a radio show in the state of Virginia. And he was asked whether or not he supported the proposed legislation that was brought forth by Kathy Tran. And here is his response in its entirety
1: no exception. There was a very contentious committee hearing yesterday when Fairfax County Delegate Kathy Tran made her case for lifting restrictions on third trimester abortions, as well as other restrictions now in place. And she was pressed by a Republican delegate about whether her bill would permit an abortion, even as a woman is essentially dilating, ready to give birth. And she answered that it would permit an abortion at that stage of labor. Do you her measure and and explain her answer
4: yeah you know I wasn't there uh, Julie and I I certainly can't speak for uh, Delegate Tran but um, I would tell you one uh, first thing I would say this is why decisions such as this should be made by providers uh, physicians uh, and uh, the uh, mothers uh, and fathers that that are involved There are, you know, when we talk about third trimester uh, abortions, these are done uh, with the consent uh, of obviously the the mother, with the consent uh, of the physicians, more than one physician by the way. Um, And it's done in cases where there may be severe deformities, there may be a a fetus that's non-viable. So in this particular example, uh, if a mother is in labor, I can tell you exactly uh, what would happen. Um, The infant would be delivered. Uh, the infant would be kept comfortable. Uh, the infant would be resuscitated if if that 's what the uh, mother and the family desired and then a discussion would ensue between the physicians and the mother so So I think this was really blown out of proportion, uh, but again, we want the government not to be involved in these types of decisions. We want the decision to be made by uh... the the mothers and their providers and and this is why julie that legislators most of whom are men by the way shouldn't be telling a woman what she should and shouldn't be doing with her body. And do you think
1: multiple physicians should have to weigh in as is currently required? She's trying to lift that requirement.
4: Well, I think it's always good to get uh, a second opinion and for for at least two providers to be involved in that decision because these decisions shouldn't be taken lightly. And and so you know, I I would certainly support more than one provider.
0: So if you're wondering what exactly he said there, we have a word for that in the English language for what he was proposing here and defending here. And that's infanticide. What the governor of one of our 50 states just said is that this baby can be delivered, placed to the side, and then the mother, along with her physicians who maybe have no mental health training, as we heard in the last clip, can help decide whether or not at that moment that this baby is allowed to live. Think about that. And when you're thinking about it, think about it some more. This is a mainstream thought process right now within the Democratic Party. I mean, just, just think about what some of the things that he said. And, and again, he made these stupid comments about, oh, well, most of these legislators that are men telling women what to do with their body. How many times does it have to be proven to you that it's not the woman's body? If I shove my finger up the governor's nose, he doesn't all of a sudden get to decide what to do with me. I'm inside his body. My finger is up his nasal cavity right i'm inside his body i am not his body i'm not an extension of his body right but you know he's not really interested in that luckily the proposed bill was struck down for now cuz the thing is is we've got to be really 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 realistic here that this is going to come up again and in 2020 If there is a Democrat in the White House, which is somewhat likely, if the Democrats take over the Senate, which is somewhat likely, and they will keep the House no matter what, I mean, it's this is going to happen. This is going to keep happening. We're going to constantly see this, and it's going to be brought up, and if you're against it, you hate women, right? So Democrats used to try to sell this line to the American people of safe, legal, and rare. That was the big thing. I think it was the, the Clintons. I think maybe it was Bill Clinton. If, if I'm wrong, please correct me where it was safe, legal, and rare. That was the official stance of the democratic party. Now it's full infanticide, full on infanticide. And let's be real about this guys. This is the new mainstream platform and position for the democratic party. No longer are, do we live in the days of safe, legal, and rare. And, and if you say you're pro-choice, That, I mean, that's what you're saying. If you say you're pro-choice now in 2019, you have to own infanticide too. You don't get to do this whole nebulous, well, you know, before 20 weeks, we don't really know if it's viable. We don't really know if it feels pain. And like, what if the mother like, uh, is like under some stress and like, doesn't have any money. Like, no, you have to own infanticide. You have to own delivering the baby, seeing it there watching it cry and then making a decision as to whether or not that thing is allowed to live and guys it only gets worse i mean just last week i was and i'll I'll include the link to the video here i was watching tucker carlson have an interview with this pro-choice advocate and the the entire interview was just talking points on her side like tucker carlson was basically asking her over and over and over do you agree with the proposed bill in virginia and it was just talking points basically saying Tucker Carlson uh, hated women if he wanted to decide anything. And, you know, how can you even say anything? You're on the the side of the party that likes to rip uh, mothers and children apart from one another at the border and let people die in custody at the border. It was all talking points. It was rude. It was evil. It was demonic. It was ridiculous. And that's where this thing is going. And guys, I know I'm going into a long diatribe here right at the beginning, but this is something you're going to have to get used to as things come up about abortion and things like this, things that are this extreme and this satanic, we will talk about it. And it will be the very, very first thing we talk about on this podcast. And I don't care what you guys say, this is what we're going to do. So, I'm going to keep bringing it to you, and wouldn't you know it, probably within 24 to 48 hours of me saying this, there's probably going to be something else that comes up, so maybe next week, with the next week's episode, we can take a break, but uh, I don't really think about it in those terms because of all the things that have been coming up, but guys, let's go ahead and launch in to this week's episode, episode 61. We're going to be looking at Toxic Masculinity, and we're going to be doing part two a Future. Just to recap a little bit, last week we did Toxic Masculinity part one, a past, or a uh, a history. Sorry. I don't even know the name of my own stuff, a history. And so in that episode, we talked about the Gillette commercial and how that really launched all of these different discussions about toxic masculinity that we're in right now. But also I looked at the history of toxic masculinity and how that relates to hegemonic masculinity, how it really started with gender studies in like the 80s. And we started to kind of see this movement and this trend. Uh, We talked about toxic masculinity and how it related to sheepdogs. You know, I made the contention and I haven't seen anybody disagree with it yet that the reason why we even have things like gender studies and these thought processes that are this ridiculous is because, of all the sheepdogs that have given us all this latitude and all this protection to be able to think about just anything and everything, just wherever our minds wander. And we talked a little bit about how beta males have the loudest voice right now. And as they get louder, this is going to continue to be an exacerbated issue and how this is really attached to the left and to the right. And And I know for, for some of you guys, it was a lot of historical context and a lot of detail, but we had to give you all of that as a foundation to build off of because that gets us up to today. It gets us up to this point right now, and it gives us an idea of, okay, how did we get here? Because we can't understand really how to traverse the environment that we're going to have to traverse as we get into the future if we don't understand what's happened on the front end. So now, guys, let's get into the future of toxic masculinity. And in the, in the first part here that we really have to look at is masculinity in all of its forms, not just the toxic ones, will continue to be attacked. That is the first element that we're looking at as we're marching towards the future is masculinity for the foreseeable future. I really don't see an end in sight is going to be attacked because modern leftists and secularists, they want to do away with not just gender roles and norms, right? Which you can argue the positives and negatives of that. They want to get rid of gender in general. Right. I mean, we've seen this in a lot of different areas where people talk about gender being a spectrum and you can within the same minute be one gender and then flip over to be a different gender. It has a lot to do with your feelings and a lot to do with basically what your college professor told you was an acceptable way to act mind you, these are not biologists that are telling you anything that is, is going to be helping you in any way. But these individuals that typically are on the left and secularist guys, I'm not just picking on them. This is these are these people they're trying to use science, but, but it's really pseudoscience and they're trying to use this to try to convince us that they're right. And we're going to have more on that here in just a minute. But if just basic gender is under attack, isn't it much, much easier to attack masculinity as a whole But here's the thing, guys, that we have to do, and this is what it's going to look like for us, and this is going to be very, very prescriptive. There are four ways to respond to people arguing for the existence of toxic masculinity, because if it's going to continue to be on the attack, we as men of God are going to continue to be on the defensive, right? And we've got to be able to fight on our heels and be able to take the fight to these individuals. So there are four things here that I think will be very easy for you guys to remember and easy for you guys to actually go through and do if you dedicate yourself to doing so. The first is make them define it. So when you're talking to somebody and they bring up toxic masculinity, the very first thing is make them define it. You got to know what you're arguing or debating about because you might think you're arguing and debating about the same thing, but they may have a different mindset. It's not that they're purposely being deceptive. They might be, but for the most part, I would probably say that they're not. But at the end of the day, we have to know exactly what we're talking about. So let's define it so that we know our terms moving forward. The second thing is make them defend it. Make them defend it. Here's the thing, guys. And most of these arguments, you've heard maybe some different apologists talk about this, that, you know, it's always the the theists, it's always the the people that believe in God that are having to defend themselves against atheists. And almost never do you see someone turn the tables on the atheists and say, well, how about you defend your position? You can't, you know, can't prove a negative. How about you defend your position? And people think that that's all that's untenable. No, it's just as untenable as what they're arguing. The burden of proof is on them and the argument is on them. They've, if they're going to bring up toxic masculinity and you've defined it and you agree on your terms, they need to defend why they're saying that masculinity is toxic. Cause by then you've gotten a definition of what they mean by masculinity. You have an understanding of what they mean by masculinity. Now they need to defend it, make them do that. The third thing is wreck their logic. Because again, most of these people are not operating using a whole lot of that. This is all ideological philosophical stuff. It's not logical, certainly not based in science just wreck their logic. And and that's exactly what you have to do. And the last thing, again, first, make them define it. Second, make them defend it. Third, wreck their logic. And fourth, drop truth bombs. Drop a mad amount of truth bombs. But here's the thing about the fourth and final step is you can't do that without prior knowledge. You have to cultivate mental resilience. You have to know what you're talking about. You can't just be one of those guys like, man, I don't really understand what you're saying, but I know I don't like it. Uh, how about you stop doing that to me getting me all confused? That's a problem. That's when those other people win cuz they've got you on your heels intellectually. In in a debate of words, it doesn't matter how many pull-ups you can do. It doesn't matter how many times that, that you could, you know, smoke that person in a wrestling match. It really is just your intellect on their intellect. So, one great example of this that came up recently and I had so many people share this article with me and I'm glad that they did because it basically pitted the American Psychological Association, the APA, which is like the top pinnacle for the psychological community. Like that's what this organization is. And it was them versus Jocko Willink. So, uh, let's just talk a little bit about how that went. Basically the APA declared in an article, they had some stuff on it last year, but they really declared it here in January. They declared that masculinity in essentially all of its forms were harmful masculinity was harmful. Specifically the traits of stoicism, competitiveness, dominance, and aggression, all harmful, no matter what, all of them are harmful, right? So we know where this is going. The translation is that stoicism, competitiveness, dominance, and aggression, AKA natural masculine qualities are harmful. All of these qualities are harmful to have. Right, and people would argue like, "Oh, are these natural in all men?" I would argue that those things are natural in almost every man. It's to what degree they are natural. And someone else said that, so I'm, I'm, I'm taking uh, someone's idea there, and I would give them credit if if I knew, but uh, if I could remember rather. But they're basically taking all those things and saying, "Ah, well, that's not really that's not really good in any type of form in any type of amount." But even worse, guys, what they're claiming is that traditional masculine qualities are a disorder. Like, think about it that way, because these are people that, you know, claim to to be, you know, some of them can prescribe things to you and they can, they can assist you medically with certain issues that you might be having. They're trying to make the argument that masculinity is not only a problem, it's not only harmful, but that it's a disorder. And if it's a disorder, can't we assume that it's something that needs to be treated? And how would we go about treating that? But unfortunately for the APA, they're not citing any new scientific or medical breakthroughs in this area. They're just not. It's simply an opinion of theirs, which is based on philosophy and ideology. It's nothing more than that. And to be honest with you, um, they've been eviscerated for this by anyone in the psychological community that isn't just a ideologue. So, I mean, you should hear Jordan Peterson talk about what these standards that came out he had such a short response to it, but it was so scathing because it's absurd. Like you can't claim that something has changed that, that we need to release all these new guidelines about masculinity and about all these things and not have anything to back it up. I mean, these communities have been built on evidence on studies and they are okay with going back in time and saying, you know what, this is what we used to believe. But in light of the new things that we've been able to see, we don't believe that anymore. And us in the general community, the non-medical, non-psychological community, we love that. It's like, we like when you acknowledge, oh, you used to think this way, but now in light of new evidence, you don't think that way anymore. That's a positive as opposed to, well, we used to think the wrong way. And now instead of correcting it, we're just going to stick our heads up our butts and not do anything from there. But the great thing about it is one of our heroes, Jocko Willink, actually responded directly to this article. Now, he didn't eviscerate them as directly as Jordan Peterson did, but I wanted to read his entire response to you guys. Because you know Jocko, he doesn't really mince words. He's not somebody that's just overly long-winded without any purpose. This is a guy that is really uh, choosy with his words. He is very precise in his speech. And I am going to go ahead and read to you his entire response here. So here we go. Boys and men shouldn't follow the advice of a recent report by the American Psychological Association called Guidelines for the Psychological Practice with Men and Boys. These guidelines imply that traditional masculinity, such as stoicism, competitiveness, dominance, and aggression are harmful. These guidelines are wrong. Stoically controlling your emotions is necessary. Competitive spirit drives success. Dominance, and the mental and physical strength required to dominate, is far superior to a lack of strength, which results in being dominated by someone else. An aggression is a means to an end. Without aggressive action, you will likely be on the receiving end, bowing to someone else's aggression. Of course, it would be nice to conjure up a world where those traditional masculine traits were outmoded and unnecessary. Perhaps in that fantasy world, everyone could just let their emotions spill out. Instead of competition, in that imagined world, everyone would win. Rather than looking to dominate in this imaginary realm, everyone would collaborate and live as equals. And finally, in this fictional domain, aggression would not stand and people would simply hug each other and get along. But that world doesn't exist. Would it be nice if it did? Sure. But it doesn't. The world is a hard place. Life is tough. Human beings are not always benevolent and kind. You cannot count on charity, tolerance, and compassion. If you show your emotions, you might get taken advantage of. If you make emotional decisions, they will likely lead you in the wrong direction. If you lack competitive spirit, you will probably lose on many fronts. In being hired, promoted, negotiating a salary, and even in finding a romantic companion for your life. Finally, if you are not aggressive, you will not be able to capitalize on opportunities. Good things in life don't just appear on your doorstep. You will have to be aggressive and make them happen. Failure to do so will result in missed opportunities. Instead of you being in control of your life, life will be in control of you. So, be stoic, be competitive, be dominant, and be aggressive. But it isn't that simple, and this is where things become difficult. It's important to not go too far with any of those traits. Just as I wrote about in the recent book, The Dichotomy of Leadership, which I co-authored with my SEAL teammate Leif Babin, a leader must strive for balance and a man must do the same. If you turn your emotions off completely and become overly stoic, you will not be able to connect with anyone. You will not be able to lead because people don't follow leaders who show no emotion. Furthermore, if you shut off your emotions, you will not feel the joy and happiness that drive you towards success. You will lack the positive emotions that make life worth living. If you are too competitive, you can be driven to the point where you cannot enjoy anything. You will obsess over winning and drive yourself crazy. A loss will crush you. You will be tempted to commit more immoral or illegal acts in order to win in the short term. Those infractions will come back to haunt you. In the long run, you will fall apart. The will to dominate must also be tempered. If you focus on dominating in all situations, it will not work out well for you. If your goal is to dominate, you won't listen to other people and will thereby miss out on other ideas and thoughts that might be superior to your own. Over time, you will wear out your welcome damage relationships and expend all your leadership capital. No one likes to be around people who require everything to be done their way. Lastly, if you are hyper aggressive, you will burn yourself out. You will take too many risks, burn too many bridges, and use up all your ammunition. As a leader and as a man, you have to be able to recognize it when it's time to back off. When it is time to retreat, reorganize, and reload so that you can come back to fight another day. This list of dichotomies continues on endlessly. As a leader and as a man, you have to have balance. You must be courageous but not foolhardy, decisive but not dictatorial, open-minded but principled, disciplined but not rigid. So don't listen to the media telling you to suppress your masculine traits. Don't listen to commercials conveying that acting as a traditional man is bad. But at the same time, don't let those traits or any other drift to the extremes. You will fail as a leader, as a man, and as a person. Instead, balance the dichotomies that pull you towards one extreme or another, and pass that balance onto to your sons and your daughters as well. These so-called masculine traits aren't just for men. Guys, I thought that was just absolutely fantastic because the thing is, is he so directly destroyed the argumentation of the APA, but then he acknowledged that there are extremes and dichotomies to everything. Because again, guys, if you watch the Gillette commercial, I know a couple of people, you know, listen to the podcast and I had one guy specifically reach out that didn't really understand the, my problem that I have with the Gillette commercial or the millions of other people that have a problem with the Gillette commercial because they're like, well, aren't all these things good? Well, if you have this idea in your head that all the things that were being shown in that commercial is stuff that we all accept from the beginning, you're already on the losing end of the argument. Because again, as I mentioned in the last episode, we don't just assume those things are good. Like we're not fans of bullying. We're not fans of mansplaining. We're not fans of guys objectifying women and grabbing them without their consent. All those different things. We're not fans of those things, which leads us into this next section here. We've got a few more sections here of this podcast for you guys. And this is caricature masculinity versus biblical masculinity, because as we're moving on towards the future, we have to have something that we're striving for and moving towards. And the thing about it is, is for you as an individual, it's either going to be towards the caricature, sorry, the caricature of masculinity or the biblical side of masculinity, masculinity as described by and revealed inside of the Bible. And the thing about caricature masculinity is that's something that we can describe pretty easily doesn't take a whole lot of nuance to describe that. I mean, just think about it. And you can look at the media. You can look at just people's general knowledge. You think, you know, bodybuilder, womanizer, hunter, uh, cheap beer drinker, four wheel truck driver, uh, family tyrant, or maybe even like the other side, you know, the clueless, useless dope, the guy that basically, again, I, I bring this up all the time. Think about how men, how dads are portrayed on most shows, Look at Phil in Modern Family. That's kind of the typical guy, just clueless, kind of a dope, but everyone just kind of loves him. They like to have him around because he's he's, you know, just uh <laughs> pleasurable enough to keep around but not quite as annoying that you would want to get rid of him. But here's the skinny, guys. The definition of the caricature of manhood will always change based on what people want manhood or masculinity to be. It will forever be a moving target. Because again, there are things today that people didn't think were harmful five years ago. I don't remember seeing the American Psychological Association come out and talk about competitiveness and and how just competitiveness in its entirety is dangerous, especially within a masculine context. Like that's incredibly, incredibly ridiculous and and almost insulting to to think about things in that way. But again, as we go back to that quote from Jordan Peterson, there are people that like hierarchies and typically the people that do well in the hierarchies. It's the people that don't do well in hierarchies where there is a winner and a loser. Those are the people that try to tear the hierarchies down. But now let's talk about biblical masculinity. And I want to talk about biblical masculinity in three different ways. And then after that, I want to talk about the different ways that we can look at in terms of the future of masculinity, because in our opinion, there are four key issues that the future of masculinity hinges on. And we'll get to those here in a little bit. So you're going to have to stick with us to get to that. But again, I want to talk about biblical masculinity and break it down into three ways. Okay. The first, I want to talk about a man's devotional. Okay, so for those of you that are familiar with undaunted, a lot of you found undaunted life by finding undaunted life a man's devotional on the YouVersion Bible app okay and that has been completed almost 50,000 times. It's done really really well. Uh, a lot of people are, are waiting for the next one I've had people try to buy the rights to it like it's just it's just one of those things that it's really struck a chord with a lot of people but we got to go back even one more step to according to undaunted life, what is the definition of a man? or manhood, or masculinity, or any of those things, however you decide to say it. And what we say is that it's a male that cultivates spiritual, mental, and physical resilience daily. Guys, this is why we talk about spiritual, mental, and physical resilience all the time. Because most guys are not crushing it in all three areas. And you look at your life, every bit of your life is a snapshot in time. There are times when you're in really good shape, and now you've taken some time off. There are times that you had an incredibly deep Uh, you know, connection with Jesus. And then there are times where you just kind of go through these dry spells. I've talked to some guys recently about some dry spells that they're in that have been fairly substantial and long lasting. But within this devotional, we spend a week, it's a 21 day devotional. There is a week, seven days spent on each of those areas of resilience, spiritual, mental, and physical. But the devotional, it answers these four huge questions and they are one, can I be manly and spiritual? Two, how can I serve God with my mind? Three, is my physicality an act of worship? And four, how can Jesus be the lion and the lamb? Those are the four big questions that the guys that have finished the devotional, that they feel like they've got a very good idea of where this goes. And so for us, the very first thing that we would suggest that you do, because it really doesn't take a whole lot of dedication on your part, you know, maybe 10, 10 to 15 minutes for 21 days in a row to really get a good primer for what masculine, biblical masculinity is, what biblical masculinity is. So that's the first thing is go through there because I don't want to just go on this diatribe about what's inside the devotional, especially since a lot of you have already read it. But for the rest of these, I want to make sure that it, it adds to what we're saying and what we've done already with the man's devotional. So the second thing under biblical masculinity is there are other examples from scripture that we can take and be like, okay, this is what a man is supposed to be. And so, uh, thanks to Jenna Ellis over at the Daily Wire, she made a, a very short list of some different things. Um, this is this is an individual who has came out multiple times and talked about how we have a desperate need for biblical masculinity, and she's coming at it from the perspective of a woman. So it's absolutely absolutely refreshing for her to have that. And so I'm going to go through a few of the things that she talked about because she she gave some scriptural references here. But the first thing is protectiveness, and we see that in First Peter three seven. I'll read that here. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life so that your prayers may not be hindered. Also, we look at the scriptures and we get some hints about servant leadership. And so the first thing we see is in Matthew 23:11. this is Jesus talking, the greatest among you shall be your servant. And then we go to Ephesians 5, verses 25 through 29. There's going to be a lot of Ephesians 5 in here, but it's this. So then there's other examples in the Bible as well. One is, uh, another thing is sacrificial love. We get that from the Bible, and we get that again from Ephesians 5, verses 25, which we've already read, but it's again, husbands, love your wives, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Again, sacrificial love. How about fatherhood? We see this in the next chapter of Ephesians, Ephesians 6, verse 4. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So again, more hints about us, how we should act as men. Let's keep going. Strength and headship. We see that again in Ephesians five twenty-two verses uh well verses twenty-two and twenty-three, and also we see that in first Peter, but we'll go ahead and go into Ephesians five, twenty-two, and twenty-three here. Wives submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. And then we go into 1 Peter uh, 5 and verse 3. We see them talking about basically dominance, how to use your strength and headship. And it was this, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. This was looking at people that were elders and kind of looking at some of the things. Again, if the elders are called uh, to be exclusively men, we can get some more hints about manhood there. And then we see kindness, compassion, humility, gentleness, and patience. And we can get all that from what we see in Colossians 3, verses 12. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. And so that's the second part there, because throughout your Bible reading, you're going to get hints about what good manhood looks like, right? And as a lot of you would point out, there's not really that one example from someone in the Bible that's like, okay, I want to model after everything because there's a lot of things to like about David and there's a lot of wretched inside the heart of that man, right? There's a lot of things to like about Samson, but then gosh, what a foolish guy that guy was. But I want to get into the third part here when we're talking about biblical masculinity. And this is going to require for a lot of you guys to do a deep dive into the gospel of Luke. And I got to give a big shout out to Matt Hayes out of Tulsa, Oklahoma. So this is a guy that's been uh, an early follower of all of our ministry stuff. And he's constantly sending me things that 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 we can use and kind of incorporate in some of the things that we're doing. And so this section is a lot uh, in, in large part to what he basically pointed out. But he sent me an email and I have his permission to read a huge section of this email here, basically talking about the gospel of Luke. And the reason that I want to share it in the way that I'm going to share it is because I never really thought about the gospel of Luke in this way. And so I think it's going to be very, very important for us moving forward to look at this. So let me just go ahead and read from his email here, and then we'll get more into the different definitions that he went into below. I believe that the Bible should be our source for correct manhood, and no Bible character will fit that mold as perfectly as Jesus. it's been presented to me that each gospel has a focus, and Luke's was Christ's humanity. If so, the biblical manhood of Jesus should be emphasized in Luke's gospel. Biblical scholars present the idea that each of the four gospels has a theme. Matthew is written for Jewish people and focus on Jesus' kingship, the Messiah, the fulfillment of God's promises. He traced the royal line from David to Joseph even though Joseph was not Jesus' father. Jesus teaches on the kingdom of heaven 40 times in Matthew's Gospel. Mark wrote to the Gentiles and showed Jesus as the active, intentional servant, Isaiah's suffering servant. Mark is the immediate action Gospel. Mark portrays Jesus as a man of action, and all those actions are seen through the lens of a servant. If you like action mu- movies, you will like Mark. John wrote to show Jesus as eternal God. John's gospel traces Jesus all the way back to the beginning of creation. John uses seven signs to show, to show that Jesus is God. Luke is the focus of the following paragraphs. His gospel focuses on Jesus' humanity. Thus, we should find the manhood of Jesus highlighted there. So Luke was a doctor writing to an intellectual Greek. Unlike Matthew's gospel, scholars believe Luke gives us Jesus's true human lineage, tracing it from God to Adam to David to Mary. While Matthew mentions it in passing, only Luke gives us the actual events that took place before, during, and after the conception of Jesus. Essentially, Dr. Luke signed Jesus's birth certificate, certifying his humanity and his manhood. Luke's gospel is unique in that it's an account Um, in that its account is well-studied and given in chronological order. Its first few chapters give a unique insight into the development of Jesus from childhood to manhood. Specifically, he continued to grow in strength and wisdom and grace. We see that in Luke 2.40. Others smarter than me will tell you how Luke focused on the humanity of Jesus and his interactions with humanity more than any other gospel. If it is true that Luke's gospel focused on Jesus's humanity, and if we want to study the biblical manhood of Jesus, then we should get the most accurate view from Luke's gospel. So I thought that Matt did a very, very good job of summarizing that. But then even beyond that, and I'm going to give you guys a lot of resources to kind of back a lot of these things up, so don't worry. But there were kind of two different sections that he broke Luke down into. And the first one is there's no no shortcuts to manhood. And the second, work hard, be honest, and be content. And so under the no shortcuts to manhood, we see that Jesus was conceived and born. We see that in Luke one, 30 through 35. Jesus, the child was brought up in a godly family. We see that in Luke chapter two, Jesus, the child grew in strength, wisdom, and grace into Jesus. The man, we see that in Luke two 40, Jesus was baptized. We see that in Luke three, 21 and 22, Jesus's genealogy went from God to the first man, Adam through King David and to Mary. We see that in Luke three, 23 through 28. And now the next section, work hard, be honest, be content, we start getting a little bit more into the other elements that would uh, constitute manhood to us. And the first is Jesus faces enemies, flesh and spiritual. We see that in Luke chapter four. Jesus taught, read scripture, and prayed in public with authority. We see that also in Luke chapter four. Jesus was mission focused, not fame focused. We see that in Luke four, 42 through 44. Jesus did not shy away from telling men how to do their job that's Luke 5, 4 through 7. Jesus inspired men to become disciple makers. We see that in Luke 8, 38 through 39. And Jesus did not shy away from face-to-face religious or political debate. Very, very important. And we see that in Luke 20. And guys, there's a whole lot more to that there. And at the end of this episode, when we do the quick resilience boost, I'm going to run down more specifically some of the resources that Matt found that kind of made this argument. But guys, this, this got me like excited, got me like jacked up because I know a lot of times when it comes to scripture reading and Bible reading, even if you're reading through a devotional, it can kind of be a slog. You're just like, ah, okay, I'll read it again today because I get points for it. And I want extra gold bars, you know, on my sidewalk leading up to my house in heaven or whatever the thing might be. This got me excited because I love looking for examples of manhood and masculinity in scripture, good and bad. And you feel like you get it a lot. And I think intellectually, we know that the perfect example of manhood should come from Jesus. But then again, we're always in churches. that only talk about the lamb of God. And then we're missing out on that other part, the other part of Jesus that we might consider to be a little bit more traditionally masculine. But uh, again, just shout out to Matt has Matt Hayes. Thank you so much for putting this together for shooting me that information. Cause I think it's going to be helpful to all the listeners here, but guys, basically all of last episode and all of this episode is leading to this moment where we're going to talk about what the future of masculinity hinges on. And these are going to be things that you guys have to take seriously, or you basically wasted your time. You wasted an hour and a half, couple hours of your life getting to this point, And you're just going to let it go in and ear and in one ear and out the other. But the future masculinity hinges on four key issues and how we as men have to respond to them. Okay. So follow me through these four. The first thing is the presence versus absence of men, the presence versus absence of men, because here's the reality guys. We don't have a presence of masculinity problem. We have an absence of masculinity problem. And guys, I'm about to just go through a bunch of stats here. And I'm going to go through these rapid fire and a lot some of these stats are a little bit old, but it's the last time either of these stats were gathered and you can pretty much assume that all of these stats if they sound bad, they're worse now in 2019. So, buckle up. 24.7 million children, which is 33% of children in the United States live absent their biological father. The percentage of children living with mother only, living with their mother only has tripled since the 1960s tripled. Now let's talk about babies born out of wedlock. In Asian communities, it's 17% of babies. White communities, 29% of babies, which has gone up by tenfold since the 1960s and 70s. Hispanics have a 53%. 53% of babies are born out of wedlock. American Indian, 66%. And black Americans, 73%. And all of those numbers have gone up. None of the numbers in any of those communities has gone down over the last several decades. But just think about that. About a a third of all white babies, half of Hispanic babies, three quarters of black babies, they're all born out of wedlock. And a lot of those things end up working out where the dad's just not there. It's not that that they're not married. They're just not there. Let's keep going. 63% of youth suicides are from fatherless homes, which is five times the national average. 90% of all homeless and runaway children are from fatherless homes, which is 32 times the national average. 85% of all children who show behavior disorders come from fatherless homes. 20 times the national average, 80% of rapists with anger problems come from fatherless homes, which is 14 times the national average. And 71% of high school dropouts come from fatherless homes, nine times the national average. Let's talk a little bit more about education. Children with fathers who are involved are 40% less likely to repeat a grade in school. Children with fathers who are involved are 70% less likely to drop out of school. Children with fathers who are involved are more likely to get A's in school. Children with fathers who are involved are more likely to enjoy school and engage in extracurricular activities. Now, let's talk about substance abuse. 75% of all adolescent patients in chemical abuse centers come from fatherless homes, 10 times the national average. Researchers at Columbia University found that children living in two-parent households with a poor relationship with their father are 68% more likely to smoke, drink, or use drugs compared to all teens in two-parent households. Teens in single-mother households are at a 30% higher risk than those in two-parent households. 70% of youths in state-operated institutions come from fatherless homes, which is nine times the national average, and 85% of all youths in prison come from fatherless homes, 20 times the national average. So a couple of just a rapid fire things here that don't have stats attached to them. Children from fatherless homes are much more likely to end up incarcerated, be involved in criminal activity and to become child abusers themselves. And guys, I could have put several hundred more statistics in here, but I think you got the point. But here's the big point that I don't want you to miss. Even if you just kind of zoned out as I was giving all these numbers, or maybe you're more visual, you need to see it in an infographic or something like that. This is the big point. Notice that none of these stats cited the presence of, of a good father. Some of you didn't get how big of of a deal that was. Notice none of these stats cite the presence of a good father, just a present one, just a father that was there. I mean, think about that. Just having a dad that's there, that's imperfect, maybe even crappy is still better than when they're just living with mom, when there's no male role model, when there's no masculinity around. So this is why we're saying that there's a huge issue with the presence versus the absence of men. And here's the thing. You already got the big point, but here's our role as men of God. We have to hold a father's feet to the fire. So I've got a story of a guy here that let's just say I don't really like this guy. He's one of my least favorite guys on planet earth and it has a lot to do with this story because it's a story of extreme cowardice and I'm obviously not going to use the guy's name, but I know this guy intimately. This is a guy who had three sons, has three sons and a wife, everything seemed to be going well. And then all of a sudden this guy decided that he was going to bounce with the secretary. So he ran off with the secretary, leaving his three sons and his wife behind. And, you know, basically was having this fling, having this affair. He gave up his entire life to go and have some probably good wild sex with some secretary. Right. And it got so bad And he uses this as an example, almost to make you feel bad for him. Whenever he tells a story, he got so bad and he got so twisted in his mind that before having sex with his whore of a secretary, he would pray with her. They would hold hands and pray for his wife and his sons. Think about that. Now there are guys that have a lot of depravity in their lives. They have a lot of issues inside of them internally. But here's the thing that I want to pull out of that story it's not where he's at now. It's not whether what happened with his marriage or what happened with his sons or that's not the point. The point is, is that it is abundantly clear that the men in this dude's life did nothing to hold his feet to the fire. Nothing. They saw this happening. They knew this was going down. His coworkers certainly did the the guys in his church, right? All his foxhole guys, right? Like those guys knew what were they saying? Did any of them snatch this dude up by his shirt and say, you're not going to do that? Did any of them drag him out of that roach motel that he was banging his secretary and drag him back to his family and make him stay there? We have to hold their feet to the fire because if they are getting twisted and this happens to a lot of guys, if they get twisted in their brain as to what they're supposed to be doing and whom they're supposed to be doing it for, that is our role to step in and help them out. And it might get physical guys. Embrace it. If it does, So that's number one. The second thing that we need to talk about is the false dichotomy when elevating women, the false dichotomy when elevating women. Here's the big point. Putting down men doesn't elevate women. That's it. Putting down men doesn't elevate women. There are a lot of people out there that think, okay, if we suppress men, if we pretend like the patriarchy is this real thing that has led to all this negative in the world, that if we can suppress that, then somehow women will rise, which isn't true at all. Our role of men of God in this is pretty easy. Elevate men and elevate women. Not one or the other. We don't get to pick, guys. Because guess what? We all have the Imago Day. All of us need to be elevated. And in the role of headship, as defined by Matt Chandler, which we've talked about and, and informed by the Bible, headship is the unique leadership of the man in the work of establishing order for human flourishing. So we can't have human flourishing if men and women both, yes, binary gender, if men and women both are not being elevated at the same time. So there is a false dichotomy when elevating women and we have a role in taking care of that. The third thing, and a lot of you guys want to talk about this and I understand why it's rites of passage. I mean, guys ask yourself, when did you know that you had become a man? When, when did you know it? When was the first time you knew it? Because for some of you is, you know, the first time you had sex, first time you had a beer or whiskey or whenever you moved to college or when you got your first big boy paycheck, whatever the thing was. But the thing about toxic masculinity, guys, is it's having the biggest impact on our boys. Not the men as much. It is certainly having an impact on them, but it's having a huge impact on our boys because toxic masculinity is telling boys and their stupid parents that they don't need to learn how to be a man. You know, the the left is telling us that there's no biological differences between boys and girls, that gender is a social construct, which is one of the dumbest things and one of the the most antithetical, anti-science things you could possibly say. Here's another thing. We're drugging up our boys at an alarming rate, telling them that the basic elements of what makes them a boy are wrong or disordered. Matt Walsh over at the Daily Wire pointed this out. There's an overwhelming number of kids on psychotropic drugs like Ritalin, but the overwhelming amount of those kids are boys, not girls. We're, we're, we're seriously drugging boys because we don't know how to handle them. But, and we're telling them that their energy and their excitement and their way of learning is just wrong. It's just absolutely wrong. I mean, just think about that. So getting back to rites of passage, there are many organizations out there that are attempting to do defined rites of passage for men and young boys. And there's one here locally called Santa Stone. This guy is uh, Eric Browning. He's in my Sunday school and he's, he's doing a lot of that right now. He's kind of thinking through that and writing to where you can have these defined rites of passage all the way through your young, uh, you know, your young adulthood. But many men are looking for an organization like that, which is a great one to do rites of passage for them. But what we say is, is if you can't do it yourselves. There's nothing wrong with going through an organization that does those types of things. That's absolutely fantastic, but if you don't have the means to go through an organization like that, you certainly have the means to do this yourself. And here's the big point with this one, guys: Cultures will definitively, with like with definitively defined male rites of passage, don't have crises of manhood in their cultures. Basically, if you have no rites of passage, it leads to confusion on masculinity. And I know some of you guys are thinking of these examples that we talked of. You know, there's this tribal culture in Brazil that they stick the boy's hand in a glove filled with bullet ants, and it literally feels like their hand's being shot. And if they make any noises or or grunt or in pain that they're not considered a man... You have African tribes that will send young boys out into the wild with a spear, and they either don't come back, which means they suffered an honorable death while trying to become a man. They come back with the head of a lion, which is put on their hut. The skull is put on their hut forever to know that a man lives here, or they come back alive and they're basically branded a coward for the rest of their life. And there's example after example after example. And yes, a lot of these cultures are somewhat antiquated and not, you know, westernized or modernized or any of these things, but none of these cultures have a problem with understanding masculinity. But a culture like ours, where most of us don't live in, you know, a a religious environment that is defining when we become men, that becomes a problem. So again, that's the big point. But what's our role as men of God? And that's to not take rites of passage for for the boys in our sphere lightly. Don't take it lightly. And that's why I put it, the boys in your sphere. That's not just your sons, guys. These are your nephews. These are the boys uh, that are in the Sunday school that you teach, the the boys at the camp that you volunteer at, the the other boys on the team whose fathers aren't there. Don't take that lightly. They have to be taken through rites of passage or they're going to risk running downstream of culture. We have to enter the fray. I mean, we have to motivate the right people and make it happen. So that's really, really important. And so again, to just kind of recap here, the first thing that we got to be concerned about in terms of a key issue and how we're supposed to respond is the presence versus the absence of men. That's the first one. The second one is the false dichotomy when elevating women. The third is the rites of passage that we need to take our boys through. And the final one is embracing biblical masculinity. And see the previous section where we went through three huge chunks to give you guys like, okay, if you just want to do a study through the study that we've written, go for it. If you want to study these, you know, basically uh, handpicked scriptures from all over the New Testament, go through that. Or if you want to go into a deep dive of Luke, it's there for you. The big point here, guys, is if we don't filter our view of manhood through the scriptures, we just run the risk of adding contents that are downstream of culture. We're going to add the our own elements and some of our personal proclivities into something that is extra biblical. It's outside of the Bible. And our role as men of God is to study the scriptures ourselves, teach it to others and live it out. And guys, you have no excuses. I mean, all of you listening to this probably have you version on your, on your phone. You've probably got multiple Bibles sitting on your shelf that you just need to blow the dust off and like start reading them. Right? it's all right there for you. And guys, I know this is a lot of content and we did it this way on purpose. That's why we broke it up into two separate episodes, but this is supposed to weave a narrative for you that is helpful for you as you're moving forward. Because if you don't have a plan for these things, then you can't imagine that there's going to be a plan for your sons either. And that's the thing that I'm most worried about because, you know, for us as men, we're either going to do what we're going to do, or we're not going to do what we're going to do. We're we're, we're kind of defined who we are for a lot, for a lot of us, right? At least we think that way, but not for our boys. Our boys still need us. And it's really, really important that we enter the fray guys. This is only going to get worse. It's only going to get worse. I mean, toxic masculinity has become common vernacular, right? And if we don't know how to fight back, it's going to overtake us. All right, guys, before we get out of here, quick resilience boost. As you know, by now, we are a men's ministry and our mission is to cultivate manly resilience. And specifically, we do that by providing content that forges spiritual, mental, and physical toughness. So today we're going to work on spiritual and mental toughness. And so I've got a lot of links for you. I'm going to run through them real quick. So I've got the YouTube link for Kathy Tran as she presented the third trimester abortion bill. We also have the YouTube link of the governor of Virginia responding to that. And then I included that uh, video of Tucker Carlson sparring with a pro-choice advocate. Uh, It's it's a very short video because it was absolutely useless, but I want you to see the interaction. I uh, gave you the link to the APA guidelines where they were talking about men and boys. So you can read it for yourself. And I included Jocko Willink's direct response to that as well. I included a link to the Undaunted Life of Man's devotional for any of you guys wanting to head into that and then Ellis, which was uh, from the Daily Wire when she, Jenna Ellis, when she compiled those different scriptures about biblical masculinity, that article's here. And then all these next few resources are basically just from the deep dive into the gospel of Luke. And so we have Don Stewart talking about why there are four gospels. I have a link to uh, Jesus's genealogy in Luke, a link to why is the gospel of Luke unique? It's an article that speaks to that. Then there are three different articles in a row that kind of go into uh, men in Luke one through three, men in Luke four through eight. And then basically what does Jesus say about manhood? Three different links there. And then also uh, the next several links are from Dr. J Vernon McGee. He does a a thing that some of you guys have probably heard of called through the Bible. I think it takes you through the entire Bible over like three years or five years or something like that. So there's some YouTube links or some links of stuff of him describing Luke and then just the regular old uh, website where you can do any part of the Bible. Then there's some statistics uh, from the fatherless generation and father.com. So a lot of the statistics I talked about back there, but then these last four things I think are very important to you because I know for a lot of you your ears perked up when we heard when we were talking about rites of passage. And so Art of Manliness has done some of the best writing on rites of passage that I've seen anywhere on the internet. And so there are four articles from the Art of Manliness and they are these: How to create your own rites of passage, coming of age, the importance of male rites of passage. Eight interesting and insane male rites of passage from around the world and the rites of manhood, man's need for ritual. So these are incredibly, incredibly important things for you guys to look at. And I'm glad we can provide those for you here. All right, guys, thanks a lot for listening to the podcast. As always, please subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Google Play and refer your friends to listen and share this on social media. If we deserve a five-star review, please leave us one. We are uh, just so thankful for all the reviews. And if you leave us a five-star review, leave us three or four sentences that let us know why you like the content. I'm currently booking speaking engagements for the entirety of 2019. So if you want me to be a guest on your podcast, speak at your men's event, come to your church, meet your team, whatever, hit me up, info at undaunted.life, info at undaunted.life. Our website is www.undaunted.life. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Undaunted Life or facebook.com backslash Undaunted Life. You can check out our free devotionals on the Uversion Bible app. Just search Undaunted Life under plans. And as always, we want to thank the band August Burns Red for allowing us to use their entire music library for our content. The intro outro track on this podcast is our song King of Sorrow, which is off their latest record entitled Phantom Anthem. The links to all of this are in the description. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Remember, Keep cultivating manly resilience. Keep forging spiritual, mental, and physical toughness. Keep seeking the Lion of Judah.